welcome to the Legal LGBTQ Plus Podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use they, he, she pronouns, and I am the Executive Director of the LGBT Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. As a reminder, the podcast is not a substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. On January 5th, 2024, Governor Kathy Hochul announced the results of a groundbreaking study conducted by the New York State Department of Labor that details the workplace experiences of TG and CNB people across New York State. Given the significance of this report, we knew we had to sit down with the New York State Department of Labor to discuss the findings, potential policy recommendations, and what attorneys need to know from this report to be better advocates for their transgender, gender nonconforming, and non-binary clients. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in conversation with Yvonne Martinez and Bree Valise to take us through this important study. Yvonne Martinez uses she, her pronouns and is the Deputy Commissioner of Policy, Strategy, and Research at the New York State Department of Labor. In this role, Yvonne leads a team of policy advisors, economists, statisticians, and researchers who provide analytical support, policy analysis, and labor market expertise to the Commissioner of Labor as well as a wide variety of external stakeholders. Prior to joining the New York State Department of Labor, Yvonne spent over 20 years with the Office of the State Comptroller. Yvonne holds a Master of Public Administration from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Bree Valise uses she, her pronouns and is a Senior Policy Advisor at the New York State Department of Labor. As part of the agency's policy unit, she works alongside the Executive Chamber and New York State Department of Labor leadership to advance policy research and analysis, engaging with advocates and stakeholders to inform report research, potential policy development, and law implementation. Prior to the New York State Department of Labor, Bree worked for the City of New York in both the Manhattan Borough President's Office and New York City Council. She studied economic and labor policy at the New Schools Milano School and has a master's degree in public policy. Bree, Yvonne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. This report is the first of its kind, both in New York State and nationally. How did the 2023 TGNC and B employment report come to fruition? I'll start. The call for the report originated in the legislature, passed both houses, and was signed by the governor. And you know, it it directed the Department of Labor to look at the topic of transgender employment in New York State. And we were very excited to undertake this project, right? But I will say that there was some trepidation as well because we knew that unfortunately the data in terms of collecting information in this way didn't really exist. You know, we have some experimental data from various sources, including federal resources, but we knew that data had limitations, but we still wanted to do right by this request. We wanted to make sure that we did our due diligence in trying to understand the landscape. We wanted to make sure that we were very mindful of people's experiences. Um, you know, I'll say for myself and for, for Bree, Neither one of us are of trans experience. And so we wanted to, and in fact, the, the team that worked on this report from the Department of Labor side, none of the team members 
were a trans experience. And so we wanted to be mindful of that. And we were very sensitive to that fact. And so we wanted to make sure that we set out on the right path and to engage the community in a very deliberate way. And so we planned our work. We figured we would take it from a couple, well, really three, three approaches. We decided we will talk about the data that exists, the, the quantitative data that exists, talk about where it exists, what it says, and discuss some of the limitations. We didn't want to ignore it just because it had limitations. And then we also decided one way to get an understanding is to ask people. So we also decided to have a public comment period so that individuals could talk to us about their experiences in the working world, what their challenges look like. And then we also decided let's do the same thing, but in a more organized fashion. So we decided to conduct focus groups across the state to ask questions, right? And, and to also get a, a decent cross-section of the community. I know I'm talking a lot here, but I'm gonna let Bree maybe talk a little bit about the focus group angle that we pursued. You know, she was one of the lead researchers um, along with Elizabeth Firth on this important study. And they did such amazing work and we're very much happy that they were able to do do that due diligence, right? And and make sure that that we got a full picture as much as we could as we talked about and, and delved into this topic. So I don't know, Bree, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the focus group angle that I think sure. is really, really key. Yeah. So we very much wanted to center the voices of the trans community. And we knew doing an online public comment, you were gonna perhaps miss some folks those without necessarily, you know, the access to the technology, older folks that maybe weren't super comfortable using the form. So we did hear in our meetings with stakeholders and advocates how important it would be to have someone leading the focus groups that really have experience working with members of this community, preferably led by someone of trans experience. And so we were able to hire an outside consultant who had this experience and staff members of trans experience. And they led five focus groups. We hosted a focus group geared toward older trans folks. We also did one that focused on immigrants. We did one focusing on people of color. We did one focused on rural areas because we really wanted to understand sort of the difference that different services, resources that folks in rural areas might experience. Um, and then we also did one to sort of look at what people living in cities might experience. So we had those five focus groups. We followed those up with five in-depth interviews with members from those focus groups. And we were able to get really, I think, a more in-depth understanding of some of the things that came out in the public comment to really, really understand specifics of what, what does the experience look like for TGC and B folks working and living in New York State. Before we get into those numbers, I think this is a good moment to kind of pause and mention that the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York was one of the organizations that had the opportunity to speak out about what we've been seeing across the state. So we appreciated to have the one-on-one the -on -one conversations there as well. Yeah, so did we. It was really great meeting with you. 
we really set out to meet with as many different kinds of folks as we could. So we met with service providers, we met with advocates from the community, and then we met with researchers as well who do collect SOGI data, uh, SOGI being sexual orientation and gender identity data, to really give us sort of a robust look at how we could uh, tackle this study. And I, I would say, I think the general feeling was that everybody was so giving of their time and their insight, which it's what really makes a difference. The last thing you want to do is go in on a topic that you really don't necessarily have full understanding of and just wing it. That's not, not good, not a good approach. So we, um, we certainly appreciate all of the, the feedback and, and support and again, point of view that was able to help, help us understand so many of the challenges. The feedback and support really comes through in the final product. So let's jump into some of the particular numbers that were found and some of the stories that were highlighted throughout the experiences. Can you give us kind of a rough ballpark of how many TG and CNB plus or LGBTQ plus organizations and individual people responded? I can take that, Yvonne, if you want. So we received about over 400 actual responses to our public comment. Of that, about 350, maybe a little more, were very like legitimate comments. We didn't actually get that many trolls, which was really lovely. It was more so people kind of misunderstanding what the survey was and just thought it was for anyone seeking services from DOL. So that was really wonderful. People were really generous with their stories and what they shared with us. We spoke to also, I would say it was just under 30 or so organizations, researchers, uh, advocates as part of our research as well. And then we had the five focus groups that had around five to eight folks in each group. The responses we got to the public comment, we had people write in from all 10 regions of the state. So that was also really lovely. So we got a really sort of round picture of things. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I guess since we've kind of set up the framework for how this happened and who responded, let's go into the what and the why. What did we find out? What were some of the key findings that you'd like to share with us about some of those priority demographics we discussed? I'll just start and certainly Bree, you know, jump in at any point. You know, one of the things that we that we found was that people in this community are especially vulnerable because there are compounding factors right at work here. So it's not just about having difficulties finding a job, keeping a job, feeling comfortable at a job, but there are also other issues at play, right? Perhaps on an educational attainment level, it was very clear that staying in school, getting an education is not very easy for certain, you know, members of the population. That then can lead to housing insecurity. There are perhaps mental health issues at play that again, all kind of compounding and making it much more difficult for an individual to have a successful life in, in the employment world, in the workplace. And so I think that came through definitely in all of the, you know, the talking to people that we did. And 
it even can affect really if you are in the in the workforce, what type of job perhaps you lean towards, right? So we we definitely certainly understood that perhaps people of trans experience maybe feel safer in a situation where they're working remote for obvious reasons, right? And and we saw during the pandemic that remote work exploded. But if, if somebody feels more comfortable being in a remote setting, not because it's convenient, you don't have to, to commute, but rather because it makes you feel safer, that's a problem. That's definitely a problem. So educational, you know, levels, again, housing security, mental health issues, all kind of conspire against people in this community in a way that makes it very difficult to succeed. I think um, to piggyback off of that, we generally heard a lot that discrimination is a major barrier when it comes to employment. I mean, the experimental quantitative data that Avon sort of mentioned earlier does point to perhaps a difference in employment rate between the cisgender population and the TGC and B population, with TGC and B folks experiencing less employment, lower incomes generally. And discrimination was definitely a big theme we heard through the public comment and the focus groups. I would say, and it manifested in different ways. Some were very, you know, outright hostile work environment examples of harassment, but there was also generally, I think, this feeling of discomfort maybe, or a lack of safety, both because of direct acts of violence that they might've experienced, but then also a lot of folks just because of the sort of national conversations that are happening, not necessarily feeling 100% safe to be out at work. And so we heard from a lot of folks that they're not out in the workplace and it's the only way that they sort of feel like they can be employed or that they go into business for themselves. That was another thing we heard a lot. And it's not as, I mean, that does touch upon the underground economy. Some Some individuals definitely preferred exploring that, but there was also just a general desire to be self-employed, be an independent contractor, to avoid some of the harassment and discrimination, and just also the HR difficulties or lack of competency from HR in navigating working with someone of trans experience. I think one of the things that I, you know, I remember it was from a write-in comment or maybe some of the focus group feedback. The idea of sometimes the, the HR plan is to rely on people in the existing workforce to be the educator. And that in and of itself is a problem. And that puts a lot of pressure on somebody who's trans in the workplace to be the go-to because there is maybe no formal training that's available. I don't know if training is quite the right word, but again, it's all about competency, cultural competency around, you know, we published a glossary of terms, right? Because it, it was readily apparent from the get-go that there just isn't a whole lot of understanding 
for people in general. And so we thought it was very important to make sure we were clear about what terms mean. And so we took that added step of literally publishing a glossary of terms so that we were clear about what we meant in using certain terms. But that again goes back to, I think in the workplace, that's a challenge. The, the workplace, the landscape, the landscape is changing and understanding is still a little bit out or a lot out of reach for many people. And so again, going back to, well, as an employer, it's probably also not really a suitable plan to depend on people that are of trans experience to be the people that educate the rest of your workforce about what that means. I do remember that. And, you know, another takeaway relates to the difference between older and younger workers. Based on our focus group information, it seemed that older workers tended to maybe focus on passing versus being their authentic selves in the workplace, whereas a younger worker would want to be focused on, I, I want to be who I am in the workplace. So that was kind of an interesting, an interesting contrast there. Again, and I believe that kind of bared out in, in um, some of the focus group or the in-depth interviews that we did. Well, I hear what you're saying in terms of the added burden that an employee has not only to be the educational person, but then to go a step beyond that when there aren't those HR policies or checklists in place, right, to look at, okay, well, yes, my employer understands gender identity versus gender expression, but maybe nobody updated the names in the copy machine and the dead name just keeps appearing over and over and over again to emails going out through the copy machine. So it's kind of those little points, all those little checklists that you need internally to go beyond the 101 of, okay, I understand all of the, the letters in the LGBTQ plus alphabet. Now, what do I do to actually make this a safe, affirming and effective workplace? Exactly. And, and it's also knowing that that's something you should think about doing. <laughs> Right. It's not necessarily just, well, I forgot to do it, but did I even think that that's something that would be meaningful to a person and why that might be so? So it's, and in many ways, it's starting really from the ground floor in, in establishing some type of awareness and cultural competency around the issues. And I don't want to jump ahead because I'm sure that might be coming up a little bit later in our chat when we're talking about policy recommendations beyond this, because I do want to make sure we have time to share some of the numbers that are involved here. And, and again, we're going to share the link to the report with our podcast, but I really want to encourage listeners to take the time to look at all of this information because there's more, more there than we have time to go over in the length of a podcast. Could we take a moment to highlight perhaps some of the numbers around annual income and who's living in poverty. Cause I, I just, these numbers, I just thought were absolutely, I think some folks will find really shocking and heartbreaking to learn. Sure. So, I mean, so we used some of the quantitative data sources we use. So one was the CDC's BRFES, which does ask respondents about their gender identity when asking other questions. It's one of a handful of federal surveys that do that. This uh, data is a little bit, it's not as reliable at the state level because just the number of respondents is not quite high enough to give us the 
ability to make generalized statements about the entire population. But of the respondents who did respond to the CDC purpose in New York State in 2022, there was a difference between those that identified as trans and those that identified as cis, as cis when it came to income. So um, just about 32% of the trans population who responded had a uh, income of less than $25,000 a year, whereas the cis population, it was around 13%. So that is a big difference. We also relied a lot on the LGBT Health and Human Services Network. They did a needs assessment in 2021. And they were really generous with their data and shared that with us. And they also found when it came to income, they actually separated their responses. Their respondents were all of the LGBTQ plus community generally. So those that identified as cis identified um, you know, somewhere else uh, in the LGBTQ umbrella. So not necessarily the same population as Burfus. But they did find there was, for them as well, a difference. Cisgender men and cisgender women, well, cisgender men had a 13%, 13% of them had an income of 25K or less. Cisgender women, 21%. Trans men were 33%. Trans women were 41%. And then genderqueer, gender nonconforming, non-binary, 37%. So all in all, incomes absolutely there was a difference and and yes the reality being that $25,000 a year i believe is below the poverty level but i'm not i'm not sure so don't quote me on that but especially one thing we found from our focus groups i think because we did a rural focus group and we did a metropolitan city based dweller focus group was that there are more resources for folks in cities, um, not just the New York City metro area, but in places like Rochester, Albany, but that these places are also more expensive to live. So it's a real burden, financial burden. It's it's really uh, difficult for members of this community to not live in poverty. Are there other findings upstate versus downstate that you wanted to highlight while we're kind of taking a step back and looking at the numbers as a whole? I mean, the main one is that I think there are better res. I mean, the main one is resources tend to exist in more abundance in sort of more metropolitan areas. The community can sort of find each other but expense is an issue. I will say we spoke to groups throughout the state, including an organization in the Adirondacks that's doing really great work connecting the community there. They exist mostly online because the Adirondacks is so vast um, <laughs> and people are spread out, but they're doing their best to create a community for folks online. They work with the SUNY campuses up there to connect students and help them find jobs, which is really wonderful service that they do. I mean, that would be the main difference. I think there's a misconception that all the resources and services are downstate in sort of the New York City area, but we heard from folks that that's not true, that there really are resources and community members throughout the state, and so that that's a bit of a misconception. 
I mean, I can certainly attest to that in the Hudson Valley. So you spoke a little bit about some of the differences with the poverty levels within the trans umbrella, right? You looked at cisgender versus transgender, but then you looked at within the transgender population, how things might be different for trans men, trans women, non-binary and gender non-conforming people. Are there any other findings in the quantitative data that really stood out to you that there was a noteworthy difference within the populations of the trans community in and of itself, not compared to the cisgender community? Um, I think at least from the comments we received and in our focus groups, the main thing we sort of heard from maybe some trans men or non-binary gender non-conforming folks is that they found it, well, for trans men, they found it easier to pass. And so that was why, and so they felt safer to a degree at work because they didn't think anyone was aware of their gender identity, but also felt unsafe because they were afraid that, you know, folks who are espousing really anti-trans views to them because they're unaware of their status will then find out their gender identity. We did also find the network needs assessment really highlighted that uh, young folks are more and more identifying outside the binary. So we're seeing younger folks sort of identify as non-binary, gender non-conforming, which I think going forward, again, to circle back, cultural competency around what gender is, what it is not, what the binary is, is going to be really vital as these young people start to enter the workforce in greater numbers. Right. And I think, you know, that just makes, I think, our work even more important to, again, spread awareness and make sure that employers have tools that they can use that can help them to understand the changing working landscape. Before we kind of move into the that landscape and what New York State Department of Labor can do to support employers and employees, is there a particular story from the report that you'd like to read to our listeners? Or is there someone's individual story that wasn't necessarily summarized in the report that you're able to share with the listeners that, that really is one that you will carry with you throughout this experience and going forward? We actually had a you know a conversation, um, many conversations really about we we got such rich comments back. People were very generous with their point of view and their experiences, which you know we very much appreciate because it really does kind of crystallize for the reader what what some of these challenges are. And one in particular that I think sticks with both of us you know, where you probably have all more of the details um, in your in your mind, but, you know, it involves a, a, a trial lawyer that was describing their experience in interviewing for a job. And during the course of that interview, they were asked a very specific question about whether or not they had considered the possibility that by presenting in the way that they were presenting, could you be, could this be a disservice to your clients? Which, you know, is, you know, that that's really difficult to read, difficult to think about, you know, how somebody, and I think in their story, they, they talked about like that might've been a point at which they really had 
this internal debate and conflict with themselves in thinking about their career, how they fit into the workplace, and really, am I doing a disservice to my clients because of how I present in court? Wow. I mean, so, so much we could spend on that comment, right? I mean, this is somebody's gender identity. This is not is that a distasteful piercing or a tattoo, right? Like it's very, how I can't imagine how minimizing that must have felt for that poor attorney in that interview. And and this is a person with a career who had quite a bit of schooling and investment in their career. And this is the thing that perhaps stopped them in their tracks. Hmm. And I don't know, Bree, if you want to talk about another example that stuck out in your mind. I mean, truly, there are so many that and we did. Um, I will say we did. We did. We we included a lot of the very personal stories in our publication. I think we were very mindful of putting the full comments to the reader. We definitely wanted to include more versus less. And, you know, when you're working with 350 comments, right? We really wanted to get a good, a good sense of what people are feeling, what they're thinking, what their experiences are. And I'm sorry, Bree, you were gonna you were gonna highlight another one or I can say one that I don't think it didn't actually make it into our, our report, but I think it does speak to just you know, best attempts to really understand or to to be an ally, but maybe not doing the work to understand the landscape. One of the participants in our focus group, a trans man, spoke about how he told a coworker that he was trans and this coworker started using she, her pronouns because the coworker assumed that he was transitioning and was a cis man. And that was that was the transition that was happening. And this person probably <laughs> meant well, but did not quite have the cultural understanding of the different ways in which a person can be trans uh, and not just, and just assumed to change this person's pronouns without asking. Oh dear. But I think yes, one so can dear. appreciate from... <laughs> Right. I think one can appreciate that even the asking can feel a little bit for some people who just, again, don't have the words or the understanding, it can feel a little bit uncomfortable to ask what pronouns would you prefer? Which and is that's good, part of the work that we have to do to as I say, which is a good reminder that we do a lot of these trainings throughout Pride season, especially. So if you're a law firm out there listening and thinking about booking Pride content, this is we can help you talk through right. those <laughs> look at your best practices. And as I'm sure New York State and Department of Labor would be also happy to share resources as well. Yes. Is there a particular finding that surprised you two the most when you're going back and looking through everything at the end? There were probably a number, but <laughs> I think again the aware the lack of awareness, especially with respect to rights that already exist. New York has made some headway, has moved in a certain direction to create a better a better situation 
for the, the community, but if, if people aren't aware of what their rights actually are, then that's that's a problem, right? And I think as a state, as state agencies, as state leaders, as a community at large, we can always do better to raise awareness because we shouldn't take for granted that just because a law might've been passed, people who can benefit from the rights conveyed by that law are aware that they even exist. And so, you know, we, it's, it's the awareness that I think we, we weren't necessarily surprised about lack of awareness, but I think perhaps maybe more surprised at in which community there was lack of awareness. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, my perspective. I don't know, Bree, if you have any other thoughts about what was most surprising to you. Again, there was so many things that we just, there were layers here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily surprising, but I think the thing that maybe frustrated me the most is how much or how difficult it can be for someone who perhaps has not legally transitioned and changed their name on their driver's license, how that really impacts so many different levels of their employment their inability to get paid or have health insurance under their name and gender identity and having to go back to that that legal ID and just the power dynamic that that can create when you know you might be you know working under your gender identity but that person in HR knows your dead name and how that that feels not safe all of the time and the ways in which some employers might institute policies that can create a hostile work environment. One person spoke about how they were, quote, not allowed, their employer said no nicknames. Um, and so this person, because they had not legally changed their name, ended up leaving that job because it was a way to prevent that person from using their name. Someone spoke about how, like, would it let them put their name? on their name tag because it needed to be their legal name, which there there is no law. <laughs> Says your name tag must be under your legal name. So, and just, we spoke to some employers who have really tried to create situations where their trans employees can have their health insurance or payroll indicate that they have their name and then their dead name how difficult it was and how many hoops they had to jump through to do that for their employees. So again, there are ways that we can do better to really create a safe and affirming workplace for everyone. Well, let's talk about that. That sounds like the perfect segue. Let's talk about how we can do better for everyone. There's some concrete examples like you talked about with the what name appears on the name badge, and that doesn't necessarily need to be the name on the photo identification, which you know, side tangent, I know some folks that their driver's license, there aren't enough characters on the driver's license for their full name. So their legal, legal name, quote unquote, on their driver's license is about three quarters of their name. So it's just interesting that as a society, we put so much weight onto these documents that are frequently filled with errors that affect cis people as well. Do you want to talk about maybe some concrete tips, 
or maybe some larger systemic issues to reducing some of those compounding barriers that we talked about at the top of the program? I think when it comes to barriers, some of the things that we sort of recommend in the report, we look at things, some of the things we've sort of given ourselves as an agency to work on include a job fair that is going to work with members of the TGCMB community to sort of identify employers that are open and affirming and inviting them to participate in a job fair. Because we did hear from folks that there can be hesitancy to applying for a job if you're not sure if this employer is going to be affirming. So hoping to remove that barrier in some way. Yvonne also spoke earlier about how education and skills training is something that is lacking for some members of this population because they experienced education discrimination growing up, or maybe they had to leave home because their home wasn't an affirming environment. So looking at ways that we as a state can support workforce development programs and training for TG and CMB folks is something else that we're looking to explore as an agency. One thing I was going to just kind of flag is we, you know, we also see the governor in her state of the state did, you know, mention allocating resources towards workforce development, specific, like actual money going towards workforce development for the trans community. And, you know, we think that's, that's, that's great. It's definitely something that we recommended in our report to see policy moving in that direction is great news, especially to the extent that this money gets steered perhaps to organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations that are familiar with the community, that know the community's needs, and that can really be helpful to the community in connecting them to, to employment is great. The other thing that, you know, I would say too, and we, we talk about this quite a bit, I think in the report is just, we want to see uniform data collection at the federal level. We're glad that the feds are moving in this direction. They, you know, they did pull it, put out a timing was great. <laughs> they actually did put out a, a public comment period because they're exploring some experimental questions for the um, ACS. And so we took the opportunity to voice our support for the Census Bureau to move in that direction. I think the last time it might've been in 2016 when they attempted to go down the path of asking the you know gender identity question in a different way. So, you know, that didn't result in a change in how they conduct their surveys, but now they're, you know, they're, they're taking this, they're trying again, and they are proposing some, some questions. Our uh, commissioner Reardon did send in a, a comment again, a supporting and B offering some ideas about how, how, you know, what we thought of their approach that they're proposing in the comments. So excited to see that that is happening. I think it's important to understand at the national level. I think being able to do comparisons from one state to another is always important for context. So we're happy to see that 
that happen. Now, I think the process is probably going to be one that's years long, <laughs> maybe five. So, so, but what, what also is kind of good news for New York state is that as a state, you know, the governor is taking action, um, directing state agencies to start collecting information on sexual orientation, gender identity. So we're excited about that because for, again, for state and provider of services, um, we'll now start collecting information in a certain way that gets at more detail along these lines. So at some point, we will have our own data set that we can study and better understand and better describe to the public what the situation on the ground is for New York. So we're excited to see um, New York State moving in that direction. Wonderful news. There are a few points in the survey that kind of talk about New York State versus the nation as a whole. Are there some of those notes that you want to repeat here in our conversation? Sure. I think... I mean, the national conversation, 2023 was a landmark year in anti-trans legislation um, nationwide, whereas New York State has really taken some important steps in legislating toward a, a better experience for TGCMB folks. Gender, which is protects against discrimination based on gender identity and expression, that passed uh, in 2019, and under our human rights law, the really great thing in New York State is that protects you from discrimination in employment and housing, but also public accommodations, as well as secular schools. The Gender Recognition Act has also done a lot to help people change their name and gender marker. You don't need a doctor's note anymore to change your driver's license. You don't need to publish a name change anymore which were both big barriers when it came to folks legally transitioning. And then just this summer, we did pass the law marking New York as a safe haven for trans youth, their parents, and their providers um, when seeking gender-affirming care. So these are all things that are putting New York State on a path toward a better experience, I think, for the TGCMB residents here. And it's my hope, you know, just glass half full that some of the delays have been pandemic related, right? Because a lot of those key victories you discussed were either right on the cusp of or during the pandemic. So perhaps it's just taken a little longer for some of these things to take root and for everyone to know about these. Yeah. I mean, the Gender Recognition Act passed in 2021, which was like peak pandemic. <laughs> so. Right. <laughs> So yeah, so it's one of the things I think even just talking about it in our report, our hope was to, you know, give one more space where this information is once again being stated to really help with the awareness around it. And I, I think too, again, for the DOL is we will be really identifying how we can leverage other state resources, other state agencies to get the word out in a more maybe cohesive and deliberate way, you know, working together to push information out to the public so that they're, that, that, that they're aware that that's something that's completely doable, completely necessary. And, you know, we're certainly committed 
to 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 using our tools to to raise awareness wherever we can. We appreciate that commitment. I mean, the podcast mm-hmm. is one such example, right? We reach a legal and non-legal audience, both in New York State and and frankly nationwide, even internationally. Yep. So you've already teased a few of these points in terms of next steps for the New York State Department of Labor now that the report has been released and what some of the timeframes might be for moving forward with the data collection and things to compare and contrast and other agencies to work with. Are there any other pieces that you'd like to tell us about today or any legislative bills this session that correspond with this effort that you'd like to highlight? Um, I think, you know, again, I think that we're definitely very excited again about the potential, you know, to develop a, a way to push actual monetary resources to to community groups to help on the workforce development side. I think that's something we're we're extremely excited about. And like I said, for us, for our agency, doing the you know the awareness campaigns, but also just creating easy to access, easy to use toolbox type of content for employers is something that can be helpful. It can be useful. You know, we provide so many services to the business community that I I think when people think of the Department of Labor, they don't think about us in that way, but we actually really do make a concerted effort to be helpful to businesses in general to small businesses as well, because the resources are, are not the same. And this is just another way that we can do that. We can create content that's helpful, that can help them to create you know, workplaces that reflect cultural competency in this arena. They're free, free to use, just, just use them. So we're excited about that and, and what the, the promise that, that, that that'll hold. Again, access, free, relevant, timely, reflecting the changing landscape in the world of work. All of that is is, is super important and um, we're, we're committed to doing that. Are there a few points that you'd like legal practitioners to be aware of from this report to be better advocates on behalf of TG and CNB clients? Um, again, to the extent that they're in positions to elevate awareness, I think that is really going to make a key difference. Helping people to focus, helping people to understand, like this is today's reality and this is what exists in New York. Because if, if you're going to pass a law, then great. But if nobody, if people don't know about it or aren't understanding what impact it could have on their lives, then then there's work that we can do again to 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 be better, to help raise that level of awareness among the community. So I think as people find themselves in these spaces where they can they can help elevate that conversation. I think that's great. Also, just in general, for the Department of Labor, we are here for workers. We are here for potential, you know, for job seekers. We offer a variety of services to anybody who's interested. We have a fantastic workforce team. And, you know, they are all about connecting people to opportunities. We have career centers throughout the state and they are accessible. And we want people to utilize our services. We want people at our doorstep asking us for, for assistance because we're ready. 
And over the past few years, we've really we have really leaned in on transforming our organization so that we're even more accessible in different ways. We've learned a lot through the pandemic about customer service and we are a different agency. We, again, are accessible. We are located throughout the state and we're ready to help with any type of service we can to connect people to work. We just have so many new things to to talk about in, in terms of getting people connected to work. And I hope that, you know, your your listeners and anybody that they interact with will will take a look, come to our webpage and see everything that's available to them because we've done a lot to make ourselves a more helpful agency to people who who want to engage with us. Great reminders. <laughs> Bri, anything to add? No, I mean, I think I would just reiterate everything that Yvonne said. Um, I think in the move toward creating a culturally competent workplace for everyone, it's important for all folks, but especially I think cisgender folks to sort of remember that being affirming is not just something to do. Um, when you're uh, talking to someone of trans experience, but something that should be ongoing at all times. And that's going to, you know, take some important steps toward creating that competency in workplaces everywhere. And it was something that we heard a lot in our, especially our focus groups, a lot of the conversations ended with how important it was for everyone to sort of understand gender identity if there was going to be an eventual you know time in which maybe discrimination wasn't a problem in the workplace so looking toward how to instill cultural competency at all times well i know we're just about out of time and thank you so much for all everything you've shared so far and how generous you've been with your time today thus far. But I wanted to just kind of offer one final question. If there was something that we had missed that you really wanted to make sure that you put out there into the world to let our listeners know, particularly any cisgender allies, this is that moment or final parting thoughts to share with them. I think, you know, what I would say is that this is continuous learning, right, for everybody. And we're definitely open to that. We we know that we don't know all the things, right? So, but we're open to to learning and and to doing more and to doing better. And I think as a society, as a state, that that should be that should be our our mindset. Um, you know, even on the data front, we'll start getting data and we'll start looking at the data, and then we're going to have to figure it out, right? Because even when you have the data understanding it, understanding the nuances is another step in that process. So it's one thing to have it, but then figure out what to do with it and how to look at it and 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 understand what it does mean, what it doesn't mean is key. So, you know, unlike with our traditional labor market data and how that comes to us in a very, again, <laughs> you're male, you're female, and this is what we can say about you and your experience in the workplace, you know, we've been doing that for 
many, many years. So we've had time with that data. We know that data. We know how to analyze that data and what to say about it. This is new territory for, for a lot of people, for people who are in the research space, for employers, for everybody. And so we move forward very optimistic about the fact that we are starting to ask questions in different ways that can be more meaningful, help us to drill down and really understand what's happening in the labor market. And that's all good, but there will be a period of really trying to figure out how, how to really understand and present that information in a way that is accurate, that is meaningful. So we're up for the challenge. We're excited about what the future holds. Um, and again, we're, we're just, we're happy that, that it seems like society is moving in a direction that will be helpful to illuminating the situation and, and the challenges for the community. Well, said. and I think, I think Bree is nodding because she agrees. <laughs> well said, well nodded. I hope that this report will be really a, a beacon to other states to follow suit as well. So I, I think that we're really only beginning to see this work come to fruition. So as you point out, there's a lot of work to be done ahead and looking forward to endeavoring on that mission together. Stefan, Bree, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you as always to our listeners. Please continue to like, share, and find us on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure um, having this conversation with you. We appreciate the, uh, the time and the space. Yes, thank you so much.